This week, we are continuing our conversation with Tobin Buch, author of Cold Case, Michigan, published by the History Press. If you missed the first part of our interview, be sure to look it up wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, as always, for listening. Let's get back to it. Tobin, welcome back to Crime Capsule. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. So last week, where we left off, 19-year-old stenographer Mina Decker of Grand Rapids, Michigan, had been found uh, violently assaulted and near death on the floor of the uh, warehouse where she worked. And uh, middle of the day, middle of the week, just almost the equivalent of kind of in broad daylight. Um, And yet, one of the compelling aspects of this case is the fact that the scene of the crime was so isolated and secluded and sort of tucked away and hidden. Uh, And that that has to be what made the crime possible. Can you just describe kind of the layout and why the way that that building was put together and so forth mattered so much in this case? The building was four stories and the Bear Manning uh, factory, uh, factory, the Bear Manning um, firm occupied the third floor with an office and the wear room adjacent to that. Now, sandwiching that floor was a vacant second floor and a vacant fourth floor. And what that essentially meant then is that the, 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 when the crime was being committed, she could have screamed as loud as she wanted to and nobody would have heard it. Um, so it, it would have been as isolated as isolated could possibly be. There was only one public way in and out of the building, um, and it was a staircase, and it was uh, people who came in and out were in full view of the, the workers in the first floor firm who were playing cards and eating lunch um, during that that 20-some minute interval when the crime was supposed to take place. And they basically timed that from the moment that 17-year-old banning the Union Telegram boy leaves to the time when Peters, the shoe salesman or uh, cobbler, discovers the body. So there's a finite period of time. Sometime in that period of time, someone went up, um, lured Mina into that warehouse or dragged her into it and bludgeoned her to death and then somehow got away. So that leaves some rather interesting questions. One of the questions is, how did the perpetrator get in? The second question is, this would have been a hideously bloody crime. How did the perpetrator leave uh, covered with blood and, and not be seen? Now, as the investigation unfolded, it turns out that there were only two people who came up that staircase in that critical 20-minute period of time, and it was the Union Telegram guy and the guy who found the body. So thinking was it had to be somebody else and there had to be another access point. Well, it turns out there is another access point, but it's not open to the public. It's a freight elevator at the back of the building, and there's a there's a <clears throat> seldom used sort of an emergency stair stairwell next to that elevator. And significantly, the guys on the first floor heard the elevator move, moving in that 20-minute period of time when Mida Decker had been killed. So the belief was almost certainly 
That's how the killer had to have gotten in and out. Well, okay, so that solves the ingress egress issue. What about the blood? So whoever committed the crime would have been covered of it, covered with it, if that person had gotten out of the building on the freight elevator, entering into the, the to the a busy city street across from a train station at the high noon hour. The question becomes how come anybody didn't see the blood on the guy? The, the 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 crime file is in a, it's I think it's fragmentary to be honest with you I mean over the last seventy five years or so I think things have probably been taken out of it um, it's been uh, famously case famous case here locally and I would not be surprised if there you know over the over years I mean in in, in days past police officers would sometimes take papers home because they wanted to write books about it or articles. Um, I've come across this many times in my research where stuff will pop up. Evidence and cases will pop up in, in, in the uh, home of a former police officer, things like that. So I don't know the answer to that. As far as I know, no blood spots were found in the elevator on the way from the, the body to the elevator. Um, there was no bloody hammer found that I know for sure. Right. But the, investigators notes are still part of that file and it's, it's sketchy at best. So um, there, if they did find any blood spots, it was not noted. Sure. You know, and you raise actually in your account of this case, I, I thought a fairly compelling theory um, of at least part of the crime scene evidence. It, it seems very plausible, um, which is that, okay, we, um, uh, we assume that this is premeditated in, in some some form, but more to the point, um, the perpetrator brought a change of clothes or brought something to carry his bloodied clothes in. Uh, you know that there was a he could not have escaped in wearing what he was wearing, uh, unless of course it was maybe you know extremely dark colored or something like that. You mentioned that as well, but basically your your point that like the. Uh, his own um, sort of complicity or or involvement being established by the presence of blood on him seems to have been something that he thought about, right? And I think that's a really interesting theory, right? Because that adds to the level of premeditation, right? If nobody matching that description or nothing was ever found evidentially, oh Lord, I'm going to my English professors are going to roast me for that one, but you know what I mean. Uh, evidentially, uh, <laughs> absolutely, and and I, I think that um, it is very much indicative of a pre of premeditation. Interestingly enough, the police originally followed a line that it was a vagrant from the train station across the street who had somehow, um, I think, their thinking was became enamored in a stalkerish type of way with Mina Decker. Somehow got into the building through the freight elevator. And it was some type of an assault that turned deadly. Um, but that that does not suggest premeditation, right? And the fact that there was relatively little blood found, you know, um, or, 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 you know, they didn't find any bloody clothes, suggests that somebody did prepare for this. Now, there are a number of ways. You mentioned dark clothes. There are a number of ways that this could have happened. Um, it's going to sound kind of funny and comical, but the perpetrator could have stripped naked. Um, and, and why not? I mean, there's nobody else there except her and there's no, nobody in the second or fourth floor. Another case that I wrote about 
in the cold case book, I'm convinced the perpetrator stripped bare and then showered afterwards. That, uh, or you can turn your clothes inside out. You, know? you could turn them inside out, or or you could uh, wear an overcoat, take the overcoat off, maybe even another layer underneath that, commit the crime and put these things back on. But you know, there is yet another way that this killer could have actually gotten blood on him had been seen to have blood on him and not raise anybody's suspicion. And that's if he found the body. Now, I'm, I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here a little bit. If the killer had been one of the people that came up to check on the body from the first floor, sure. right? Think about that. Think about that scene, feeling for Always pulse, possible. Always maybe possible. Maybe holding her arms, uh, cradling her head in their arms and trying to feel for a pulse. You know, they would have necessarily had some blood on their clothing and and that wouldn't necessarily have caused any raised eyebrows because they found the body in the first place. Well let let's let's turn our attention to the persons of interest because there are a couple here, you know, and there are one or two that are worth mentioning because they're uh, of their prior involvement with Mina um, or with their um, kind of workplace circlings, okay. And I'm thinking here of John Schaefer and Calvin DeBlay. Uh, you know, they are they're kind of the where the police go to first for this black box murder, right? I mean, is it possible that this romantic entanglement she'd had with John Schaefer, her on and off again boyfriend, had really turned much more sour than anybody had known? And and you can tell us about that little evidence we found in her purse, you know, that suggests, you know, something to that effect. Um, and then there's Calvin. So what what do you make of the persons of interest here? All right. So when, when the police uh, dropped or at least set aside their theory that it could have been a, a vagrant or uh, 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 somebody who was coming and going on the trains, a transient, they started to look at people that were in minus orbit for possible suspects. Now they did wind up with what amounted to a bit of a uh, red herring um, in Minus purse. She had had a grocery list, a grocery list, a shopping list on a piece of paper and she had been drafting a note. And it must've been very important to her because she went through several drafts. You can see on the note, some things are crossed off. And it's very clearly to a, a, a lover, a, boyfriend. Um, and it, it says something along the lines of, you know, uh, please think twice the next girl you hurt, something along those lines. I'd have to look at the actual note again, but please be more considerate yeah, or something please like be that. More considerate yeah. with the next girl you, that you hurt or so on and so forth. And so now the police are thinking, okay, well, you know, crime of passion, perhaps let's take a look at the boyfriend. I mean, that's one of those old adages, right? When you have a person who's killed, look first to the a wife is killed, look first to the husband, right? Okay. Well, girlfriend's killed, maybe look first to the boyfriend. And they figured that this note, you know, was a breakup note. It had to be, you know, uh, bad blood there between the two. And so they went looking for this kid. And it turns out that um, first they found him, he's completely torn up about it which would be a really odd affect for somebody who was guilty. And uh, he uh, had been in a college class in that critical 22-minute period of time, and that had been verified by all his classmates and the professor. The guy didn't do it, and he spent the rest of the week mourning with her uh, with her family. So then they started to look at other people. They look at the, the father's son who owned the place, and no, they, their alibis are, are tight. 
Um, they uh, they come to a truck driver named Calvin DeBly, who was working for that first floor firm. And his alibi wasn't so great. He more or less put himself back by that freight elevator at the time that it was heard running, um, which, if he was guilty, would be one of the dumbest things. Right to do when you think about it, and he yeah. he wasn't real concrete about where he spent his lunch hour, so they gave him a lie detector test, and he didn't really pass it. And he now to be fair to Calvin DeBly, the part of the test that he failed was the part where they asked him where he spent his lunch. Now, when they asked him very specific pointed questions about the murder, he passed. Right. Well, it, it, it turns out, you know, they gave him another lie detector test later on, and, and it turns out that his explanation was he had spent his noon hour gambling for money, and and that was considered a, a, a total sin. A in vice, his, a sin. Yeah, yeah, in, in, yeah, in his religious, you know, community, and he didn't want to fess up to that. But there were still very much suspicions around him, and, and part of me thinks that was the case because they just really didn't have any other viable suspects. I mean, the file, the police files loaded with letters to and from detectives from various jurisdictions, naming certain people that, you know, were, were known to be, you know, had stalkers or, or, or known to be types that could perpetrate a crime like this. But then nothing ever came of any of it. I mean, there just wasn't anything concrete. And then if you look at the forensics of the crime, I would argue that it's not some random act of violence from a stalker. This is something perpetrated by a person who knew her ahead of time. And there's there's some other evidence of that too. So I got really interested in that exact moment you just described where they give uh, Calvin DeBly, you know, this lie detector test. Uh, and, you know, say what you will about polygraphs. It's kind of, um, you know, the, they're, they're le- they've become less and less, you know, kind of accepted really. And, and, you know, as evidentiary standards and that sort of thing. But I guess there was a time when people thought that they meant something. Well, you had this really interesting detail in your description of Calvin DeBly's polygraph, and it kind of caught my eye, Tobin. Um, my father was a physician, and uh, my brother is a criminal defense attorney. And so, you know, whenever I start uh, encountering discussions of, um, you know, kind of medical conditions in uh, that then intersect with the law, you know, just like my ears prick <laughs> up a little bit, you yeah. know, right? It's kind of I can't not, right? right? right. Okay. <gasps> well, and the, and my ears pricked up when you mentioned scopolamine, and you said that uh, the detectives, he was initially resistant, Calvin was, to taking the lie detector. And then he finally consented. And then as part of the the lie detector test, he was administered a dose of scopolamine, which at the time was thought to be a kind of truth serum. Is that not? Yeah. I mean, it was his get out of jail card. If you, you read the reports about this particular case, he passed the scopolamine test and gave them satisfactory answers to what they were asking. And they just let him, they just, that was it. They, they, that was kind of, now, now having said that, detectives past and present have long looked at Calvin DeBly as being the guy. Sure. Okay. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I've seen the file and I, I don't know if they know something I don't know. It could be there were po- there were papers in that file that had been taken, but from what I see, there just isn't enough. 
But you know, you know how people can be with assumptions, right? I mean, you know. Yeah, seriously. Last uh, our our most recent guest, Clay Bryant, um, comes from a long line of police investigators, and he was telling us about his father's personal uh, um, sort of take on folks who let the theory define the evidence, not the other way around. But let me get back to let me get Here's back Spicol- to scopolamine. Spicolamine, yeah. But yes. Okay. Because I just, I just got real dang curious about it, Tobin. It's occupational hazard, right? And and so I looked it up, and because um, I'm also interested, I've always been in, curious whether there's such things as truth serums. You know, Hollywood will absolutely try to persuade you that they are, uh, that there are. But um, you know, it's 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 um, it's always fascinating to see it enter, you know, an official case file or something like that. Well. Scopolamine is used for a lot of things, okay, and has been used over the course of its uh, century or so long lifespan as pharmaceutical, maybe century and a half, something like that, since the compound was first isolated and developed. Um, it's been used to treat many different conditions. It is it is still used in some cases today for for um, you know particular um, uh, you know conditions. But do you know? <laughs> Do you know what researchers have discovered that was not known in the 1920s about scopolamine when administered in the wrong dose? <laughs> I'm afraid to ask, but what, oh, what do they say? Oh, man, I, I could not. I was on the edge of my seat, and I had to stand straight up. If you get the dosage wrong or if a person has an adverse reaction to it, uh, the active ingredient scopolamine can actually serve as a hallucinogenic, and it's actually used in like certain religious rituals in in different communities when it's been isolated in plant compounds to achieve these kind of states where you're seeing the spirits and hearing their words and you know that kind of stuff. So, and, uh, so a true serum that causes hallucinations. Imagine that. And you know what's funny about this is I know they used the stuff in World War II. I know they used it in interrogations on both sides. But yet another case of my cold case book. 1945, <laughs> yeah. they looked at the husband for the murder of the wife, and he was given a scopolamine test, right? So seven, even after World War II, seven years later from this point in time, um, they're still using it. Yeah, and who knows what they're seeing? Who knows what they're well, imagining? Well, yeah. You know, like I yeah. mean, who knows what Calvin de Bly is being whispered to by the, the you know the presences of 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 you know the spirits beyond, and and he's just he's probably going to tell those damn detectives anything they want to hear well, at that point. Just get even, me out of here. Well, yeah, the power of suggestion, even right? It's yeah, crazy. Totally. I'll tell you an interesting thing about the file. When I got the hands on the file, I had to go through a FOIA request. Yeah, now it's very, very rare, very rare to find a file from this vintage anywhere. Okay. I mean, I, this stuff's just destroyed in floods or of course. was taken away or, or they just destroyed it. I mean, it isn't like it is today. I mean, this memory today is like a memory of an elephant, right? I mean, it's a, you know, a microfilm and then that gave way to like digitizing and now you have a camera. You can like save everything, right? But, so it's rare to find one. When I got it, my, my digital copy of it, they redacted the heck out of it. I mean, and what's interesting about that is they're all dead. They're all dead. I mean, it's 1938, right? They, they redacted. In fact, the the file contained a magazine article from 1938. It was a, I don't know, frontline detective or front page detective, you know, one of those dime rags that were real popular. And there was an article written about this case. And, you know, and it was published and widely published. You know what they did? They redacted that too. I didn't understand it until I looked at the bill 
All right. The, the copying of the stuff wasn't what cost me, but they, they charged me per hour for the redacting. So they went redacted and redacted and redacted and redacted. And in some cases, it's you can kind of if you know a little bit about the case, you can kind of see names. You know what I mean? Like, you know, the redacting doesn't really do anything at this point in time. But uh, these are just those funny little things that you come across when you're trying to reconstruct a historic crime. Little roadblocks have been put in your way, past and present. So the case begins to go get a little colder and get a little colder until you know eventually you know all the leads dry up now you 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 do write before the leads completely dry up there there were one or two things which are kind of interesting i mean you mentioned that there was this friend of hers she'd gone to a shower and she and mina had confessed to her friend that she was really nervous about something and that she didn't want to go home alone and and there was this kind of that's the first time in all of our narrative about Mina that we've seen her genuinely anxious. And this is prior to her being killed, right? I mean, that's interesting. That is an absolute key, I think. Um, and what we don't obviously can't know the content, the specific content of that conversation. But I think that that pretty much eliminates, in my mind, that eliminates the possibility of a random act of violence. She was afraid for her life, but afraid enough to not want to walk home alone. And I think there's a second part of that. And I think the second part was that she had something very heavy on her, on her chest. She wanted to get off her chest and she was going to tell her friend and she never got the opportunity. So you have two things there. You have the idea that she more than likely, if not most certainly knew her killer. And the second one would be um, that there was something weighing very, very heavily on her mind. And I, I think in the chapter, I weave these pieces together into um, sort of a cogent uh, conclusion of what I think w- had happened to her and why. There were also, there's another kind of interesting lead here, which is that the detectives, the investigators, um, had been made aware of the presence of some letters that she had written, and they actually went to her workplace desk, uh, you know, near where she'd been killed to try to find these letters in the hopes that they would shed light, you know, on some of the relationships that were a little more obscure. Um, How did, how did we even learn that she had been writing these letters or or what, what, what's the trajectory there of that evidence? I think that might've been mentioned either in a newspaper article or that might've been mentioned in the investigator's notes. It was one of those two things. As far as I know, they never found them. Um, I think that, and, and maybe this is again, again, the, the existing files are, I suspect are fragmentary. Um, I mean, there's a lot in there, but, uh, I think that in this particular case, the police developed a kind of myopia, like a tunnel vision, right? They had their guy. It had to be Calvin DeBly. It had to be, he was the only one whose alibi wasn't completely solid, right? And I think that what happens is, and again, this is no criticism of law enforcement. I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. Maybe it's human nature, but I think a lot of times what happens, and you mentioned it, find the evidence to prove the theory, right? Not the theory that fits the evidence. And I think a lot of these earlier cold cases, you have a lot of that going on where 
they focus on one particular suspect. And in the periphery, other suspects tend to not be looked at. Now, honestly, sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they, they nail it. Their tunnel vision lands on the guy who is responsible and, and you know, they're, they're not wrong. But I think in this particular case, their emphasis on Calvin DeBly, specifically in the early stage of the investigation, might have really obscured some, some things. And I suspect that there were letters at one point in time that mean ahead. And I kind of suspect that they weren't to the, the boy who they who was her ex-boyfriend. And I, I, I kind of suspect that who they were to might have been the person that we're looking for. Yeah. And uh, that all hangs together in a in a very compelling way. Um, sad, sadly, though, as you write, you know, as each year went by and each decade went by, I mean, appeals for any information, you know, for anybody to come forward who knew anything about it, you know, e- each of those appeals was just met with this silence. And I think through this an expectation that sooner or later, Calvin DeBly was going to confess. And that went on, I think that expectation went on. And, and the newspaper articles mentioned that, you know, there's the suspect. And if you would only, you know, time is going to eventually loosen his lips and things like that. Well, that's who they're talking about. Um, but might that might all be based on an improper assumption that he might not have done it. So again, that's that that kind of myopic, kind of uh one-sided investigation I think they conducted. Um and I, I, I think also there was one of the assumptions they made is that Mina Decker was a didn't play around. I mean, it was totally outside of her realm of capability to have an affair, say, with an older married man. And so they looked at the boyfriend Schaefer as the only man in her life, the only the only bow she had. And that might not necessarily be true either. Um, there are some very, very interesting nuggets of information in that police file that never made it into print. And, you know, newspapers are great, but in 1938, there's some things they just weren't going to print. Right. And so one of them is that they sent a squad to the mortuary to try to determine if Mina Decker was pregnant. It says, in fact, I think the line is for the express purpose of trying to determine if she was pregnant. Now they may have been trying to figure out if she had been um, sexually assaulted uh, right before she died. But I, I don't think so, because I think that they knew they didn't have the technology to be able to make that determination. I think they were looking to see if she was uh, in the earlier stages of pregnancy, the conception having occurred maybe weeks or maybe even months earlier. Now, again, they, they wouldn't have necessarily had the ability to make that detection in the earliest stages, but maybe they were almost certainly they were following a line that she must have had an affair with somebody at some point in time. And obviously they weren't looking at the boyfriend because he had an iron cast alibi. So they were looking at somebody else. And now all of a sudden you think to yourself, okay, well, maybe I'm looking for other males that are that somehow came into her orbit. Um, and I would then return to my brief discussion of the Loomis crime, uh, the, the forensics here, where he hit, you know, Grace Loomis was struck so many, uh, several times in the back of the head because the killer didn't just want to kill her. He wanted to destroy her. But here we have Mina Decker, 12 years, 11 years later. 
and she's hit with a blunt object, hammer in this case, multiple times. Any one of those blows would have killed her. The killer didn't want to kill her. He wanted to destroy her. And I would suggest that that's a passion that is born from some type of an intimate relationship. So now we start to look at other men and maybe it was Calvin DeBly. Maybe there was something that some piece of evidence that was taken from that file at some point in time that we just don't know about, never made public. I, I, I don't think so, though. Um, and the, the problem I've always had with Calvin DeBly as a suspect is simply this. Where's the blood? I mean, if they found spots of her blood on his shoes, um, in his truck, on his clothing, wouldn't you think that would go a long way? That would be physical evidence linking him with the crime. Now, he, of course, was one of the men that went up to find, you know, to examine the body with Peters after Peters found, um, uh, found, found her, but you would think that there would be blood on his clothes over beyond that. And there was never, ever, I, I poured through that file and I poured through every news account and there was never, ever mention of so much as a droplet of blood on his clothing. So you come back, you come back to look at him as a suspect, where are the clothes, right? Um, I, I mean, they could have gone into the Grand River along with the hammer but and, and maybe they did. But the amount of time, you know, you think of what he did. He went up. He did the deed. He somehow changed without getting a droplet of blood anywhere. He went down and discarded the evidence without getting a droplet of blood anywhere and managed to come back in, in, in time to run up when Peters discovered the body. The timeline itself, it, it's just a stretch, right? It's just a stretch. So. Yeah, and I, I think there, you know, I think there was a, a lot of suspicion on him because of his holes and his alibi. But I think also he, you know, there were some, I think Mina, Mina told her sister that he had said some things to her that she considered inappropriate. Um, and, and I think there was some thought that maybe he was stalking her. Uh, maybe he crept up and, and just wouldn't take no for an answer. And one thing led to another, and, and she winds up dead. But again, I six blows with a ball-peen hammer, uh, claw hammer, whatever. It just it, that doesn't fit to me. That just doesn't. I don't like him. I don't like him as a suspect. Doesn't mean I'm right, but um, I don't. I don't. They could never find anything concrete enough to the point where years later, decades later, they're still waiting for him to. Uh, confess because they simply didn't have any physical evidence. And I would argue that in a case that's this bloody, there would be physical evidence. And, and in fact, there, there is one small piece of physical evidence. It's a hair that is still contained in a packet in that, in that file. And, you know, if it's still testable for DNA, which I suspect it probably is, um, they could, uh, they might be able to get to the bottom of this, but this of course would mean, gathering up samples. Uh, one last question for you about this particular case, Tobin. I mean, it, it's, it's full of mysteries just from, you know, start to finish. And, um, you know, we, we live in the hope of course that, you know, something will come to light or that somebody will find a way into the fullness of that redacted record or, or that, you know, somebody will come forward or a letter will be found or something. But uh, I actually have a much more prosaic question for you about, about the Minedecker murder. Um, 
Is that building still there yep. in Grand mm-hmm. Rapids? Yep. It is. It's still there. I don't know what it's used for, though. I've been down there in a while, but it's still there. I think the freight elevator is still there. Um, Grand, Grand Rapids in, in the last 20 years, not even that, in the last 10, 15 years, has gone through an urban renewal. And, and maybe that's true of the Crescent City. Uh, maybe that's true of other places as well. Um, we've had a lot of uh, taverns that have come in and, of course, exposed brick, you know, apartments and all that type yeah, of thing. All the rage. Um, so a lot of the buildings are are kind of getting a second life or rebirth if you want to. Um, but we still have a lot of buildings that, that are – it's like walking back in the past. You know, they, they're still functional uh, warehouses and things, but they don't look any different than they did way back when. I don't know what it looks like today. I think it looks the same. I think the layout is the same. I think it's still four floors, and, and but I don't know, you know, which is occupied and which isn't. But yes, it is absolutely still there. Well, maybe it's not too late to go check that freight elevator for a little blood spatter after <laughs> ninety years. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder sometimes. I, I mean, all kidding aside, yeah, I wonder sometimes whether a letter isn't going to pop up someplace. I mean, that would be more likely. I, I think that. Uh, I've seen crazy things like that happen. I've seen evidence just just pop up and serendipity, right? And maybe that's – and again, that wouldn't be conclusive evidence of anything, but it would then bring us more toward a satisfactory conclusion or at least a, another avenue to look at. Well, what is next for you, Tobin? I mean, with this book under your belt, this one came out about um, two years ago, and I know you've been very busy since then. So um, what what's, what are you working on now, and how can folks look you up? How can they find you? All right, so I wrote three last year. Um, I don't know what I was thinking, really. Yeah, what uh, were you thinking? <laughs> I, I, well, I was thinking that it's about time to have a heart attack, my first, or, or my second nervous breakdown. I mean, I, you know, take your pick, what comes first, right? But uh, I... um. The, the one of them is going to be published by the History Press in February, and it's called Killer Women of Michigan. There you go. Where I profile the state's female perpetrators all the way back, you know, to the 1860s of the present day. Um, most of the cases are from the 20s on to the present day. So that's going to be kind of fun out for Valentine's Day. Of course, perfect. perfect timing. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, I have another book coming out in April about the Detroit riot, race riot of 1863, um, which uh, is a really bizarre story that is going to really open some eyes about how things played out. I mean, you're going to see some things about uh, Michigan history, Detroit history, and the Civil War that just is going to really floor people, I think. And I went deep into a lot of prison records for that. And let me tell you, one of the nice things about writing historic crime, one of the things that I enjoy so much about it, and maybe this just makes me kind of a, a geek, you know, nerd, but I really enjoy looking how different, looking at how different law and order was yesterday as compared to today. I mean, it, you know, you don't have to go back that far back and they're looking at bumps on heads like phrenology, right, to determine what's going on inside. Or or I think it's called forensic optography, where the assumption was a person's eye looked like a camera and captured the image the last thing they saw. 
And in the case of a murder, they their their eye would have an image of the killer. So they had, presumably presumably somebody died with their eyes open. They'd put a tripod camera over the eyes of the dead person and take a picture of it. And then looking at it, it's like reading a Rorschach test, right? What do you see? You know, there's nothing to this. It's not science. It's not even pseudoscience. It's just, you know, but they didn't know that. So that adds kind of a quaint layer to it, which is kind of fascinating. I'm telling you, you go back as far as the 1860s and you see some really wild uh, differences. And that, that's all kind of fun, too. The third book is a lot about a Black Widow style serial killer. Um, and that is um, not going to I think it's going to be out in 24. I'm just putting the finishing touches on that one. And I'm just going to kind of leave that. There you go. Jesus. Jesus. So, yeah, do it. Do it. Murderous <laughs> women. I have a race riot and I have a black widow um, who uh, really was an interesting person. So, well, that's what stuff. I've got coming up. And then uh, I'm going to probably just take a little bit of rest before I head on to something else. But there's, I'll tell you what, I'm never going to be out of work if I want to be. Um, there's a lot of good cases. There are a lot of good historic cases yet that. Um, every time I, I pull up some dirt, I find all kinds of rocks underneath there, you know, and it, it, they all have interesting cases, right? So it's like you pull up a little dirt. Oh, there's another interesting case. There's another interesting case. Roll over a log. You're going to find some creepy crawlies underneath it. There is no doubt about it. Now, how can folks find you? What's the best way for them to get in touch? Okay. So, um, I have, uh, a website, tobinbook.com and there is an, uh, um, pages devoted to my various publications. After 24, there will be 17 total books. Um, and then uh, there's a, a, a list of, um, there's an about page that contains my email address so they can contact me there. Uh, I also have a blog called Dark Corners of History for people who are interested in reading about darker history. And it's not just Michigan, it's all over the United States, all over the world, really. Um, so my books are available anywhere books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, I've heard that some of them are for sale in Target. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty easily found and, and I do a lot of speaking, uh, publicly about the cases and stuff. So my, there's a schedule of my appearances also on my website. Well, I have no doubt that you will have some new readers and some new followers as a result of your joining us today. You've got some incredible um, detail here, which really just brings uh, the periods to life and leaves us absolutely wanting more. It's a joy. It's a joy. Well, uh, we really appreciate everything and we'll be on the lookout for your next titles and we'll ha hope to have you back on soon. Our guest has been Tobin Book, author of Cold Case, Michigan published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Thanks for joining us during our long series on cold cases for the chilly winter months. We'll be taking a week off to get our next series ready. And without spoiling anything, let me just say, this one is going to be a banger. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. 
Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.